Hello, and welcome to Rocket Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Just in time for me to go to Ireland. <laughs> I am Simone de Rochefort, <laughs> supervising video producer at Polygon. And I'm here today with Brianna Wu, executive director of Rebellion Pack, and Christina Warren, senior developer advocate at GitHub. I'm kind of out of breath, I'll be honest, because I just like got a huge bag of laundry. I was gonna say that was. I was gonna say how's how, how's the how's the back? How's like the 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 run from the laundromat back, back to back to your apartment? Love it. Tell me the Love truth it. though. How fast was I? No, you were yeah, super you fast. Were fast, but if you're out of breath from that, I I don't know. I think you need well, to no, be but, but like you had cardio. to go downstairs. You had to go down and upstairs, right? Uh, I I am on the first floor. However, okay. I will <laughs> say right. the bag of laundry is very big. And okay. I did do a little jog with it. I'm washing some right. sheets. Now, I know everyone tunes into our tech news podcast to hear about my laundry and my lifestyle. <laughs> Indeed. But unfortunately, the world has gone and given us stories to talk about again. These news stories. It's bonkers how this keeps happening every week. We are going to be talking about Google's uh, integration of AI into search results. And then we're going to be talking about, we're going to have a nice light second story for the day and talk about Elizabeth Holmes' appearance <laughs> in the New York Times. So um, good. Something which I uh, accidentally predicted. Yeah, we'll you did, talk you about did, it. We did. We did. I'm just going to I'm just going to say before we get into that, like, thank you, New York Times, for doing um, the, the best that they can to ensure that I win the bet against Brianna. <laughs> <laughs> it's never going to end. We're going to be on gonna episode 1000. <laughs> I'm still going to be waiting for my $500. All she needs to do is set one. We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about okay. it. Uh, okay, for dessert before, today. Yes. Okay. Go I'm ahead. not done. Ooh, yes. Yeah, surprise. Yeah, yeah. Yes. For dessert today, we have a special guest, and that person is Corin Bug Emery of Spooky Pinball to talk about their new Scooby-Doo table. They got that license, baby. And then our subscribers are boosties who have subscribed at relay.fm slash membership and get access to an ad-free show will also enjoy their weekly bonus segment where we're going to be talking about uh, an article that Christina actually we're going to be our own content proprietary <laughs> content here at Rocket uh, Christina has an article about Blackberry uh, that just came out and we're so going to be good. talking about that with her so, so good yes Brianna. Uh, before before we go into it I want to plug something, and that is the Rocket Podcast, because earlier today, we recorded what I think is the finest episode we have ever recorded. I mean, can I get some consensus no, on this? No, I mean, it's... it's- of, it was perfect. Of, 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 yeah, it really was. Like of our bonus type of like special edition episodes that we've done as we've done them over the last eight years, definitely our best 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the concept of what our members only uh, episode is going to be this year is uh, basically we created some fake articles with chat GPT and we uh, discussed it as though it is an episode of rocket. I'm not going to spoil it, but it was so funny and it was so fun and it is truly one of the greatest episodes we've done. So if you love the show, uh, you might want to sign up and become a bonus member to go hear what is the finest episode of Rocket, in my view. My goal for that, like, I truly hope that somebody is listening to their their Really FM bonus episodes mm -hmm. and maybe, like, puts this on and it's part of, a, like, a, a, a playlist of podcasts that are playing. And the episode starts playing and they're just listening to it. And then in the middle they go, 
wait. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. Uh, so please do uh, go to relay.fm slash membership and learn more about that. Now let us get into our show. Google was letting users opt into AI answers front and center in their search results. They're calling it an AI snapshot, and it's composed by a large language model that sources the open web. The AI-generated responses include corroborating links and a menu that can be opened to show sources for individual sentences in the AI snapshot text. For now, it's accessible to users who have opted into search generative experience, which is part of Google's new Search Labs feature. According to The Verge, these AI-generated answers aren't currently available for all searches. Uh, For example, some of the topics that are just right out are anything related to health and finance, which makes sense. But more open-ended questions or uh, often Googled uh, simple topics, uh, such as sourdough bread was the opening example in the article, like why is it so popular, uh, are in. According to The Verge's write-up, Google's goal isn't to interfere with the process of searching straightforward things that like have an answer. Example, how tall is the Empire State Building? Because Google can already tell you that without an AI layer. <laughs> it's just right there. Uh, but open-ended questions like, why is sourdough bread popular? Uh, what should I do in Paris next week? Uh, what shows are playing in New York right now? That kind of thing where there's sort of there's su- sub-questions based on who you are that you are not asking as part of that. What kind of What is my budget, for example, for shows that are on in New York this week? is where the AI is intended to kind of be able to step in and pull from a bunch of different sources. Uh, Questions that have lots of answers depending on various factors. Um, This has always been a challenge, I think, for for site owners and also for Google, which is kind of an outstanding question that remains to be answered. Um, How do you make sure that users and, yeah, how do you you continue making money from a site and how do you give users good answers? What do y'all think about this integration of Google? It it seems pretty different from what has been shown with Bing. Uh, It's different from ChatGPT. It's different from Bard. Uh, And it's probably, alongside Bing, one of the biggest integrations of AI into search that we've seen, even though not everyone can access it yet. What do y'all think? Christina, why don't you go first? Yeah, okay. So I will first start with um, the uh, disclaimer that I work for GitHub, which is um, owned by Microsoft and uh, obviously makes Bing and is invested very heavily in OpenAI, who of course makes ChatGPT. So putting that disclosure out there. No, so it's interesting. I don't have access to the new search thing yet, unsurprisingly. Um, I have had access to BARD for a while, but I I don't have access to this. But just going based on looking at the the, the preview um, that's been on like the the news articles that they showed at IO and and that's that's in the Verge article, I'm conflicted. Because Mm -hmm. on the one hand, I do like that it does seem like it's thoughtful integration at this point and and that they're saying that there are certain areas where they will not use this AI layer. On the other hand, at least the the images, the screenshots that I see so far right now, I don't know if it gives a better search experience. I I worry about that. You know, for I, I think most of us would agree, you know, look, Google is the preeminent and the best search engine in the world, and they have been the market leader essentially since they launched. Uh, but Google search has gotten demonstrably worse over the last 
five to eight years. Um, and, and I think that's just a fact. And, and I, I would argue that it's gotten worse as Google has started to cram more and more of their own services and their own stuff mm-hmm. below what used to make it good, which was you could search for certain things and you would see links and then it became sponsored stuff. And then it became info boxes, which while uh, to, to quibble with you a little bit, Simone, you said, you know, that it's not an AI layer that tells you, you know, um, uh, that the, how tall is the Empire State Building, but it actually is. That yeah, is actually, that is actually quintessential AI. But it's not AI. using the large language model. Uh, no, but, but it is using, um, a, you know, like uh, very similar things that yeah, you would use in a large fair. language model. So they, but, you know, and, and there, there have been problems with this in terms of how their, their info boxes pop up. And, and also, frankly, with Google uh, prioritizing their own services and their own things over competitors, you know, Yelp has had a lawsuit against them. Uh, for those reasons. And so when I look at this mock-up, I think that some of this is interesting and it could be some interesting ideas on how to maybe find some things. But then there's another part of me that's like, I don't know if this is giving anyone a better experience or this is just adding more clutter potentially and just, you know, giving Google even more control over how people view content and getting you, frankly, further and further away from ever actually clicking into a web page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that's I think that's really well said and I'm I agree with you that I am unsold currently on the idea that uh this is going to lead to an innately better search. One of the things I, I did like about the Verge article though is they were talking about the the tension with these large language model um um products uh and how there was this question in the design do you want it to be factual? Or do you want it to be fluid, right? Uh, factual means you, know, you use large language models. You arrive at answers very confidently. If you're trying to be fluid, you're trying to make it more of a, a human experience. It's, it's talking like a human. It's extrapolating data to make a conversation seem more natural. And this is an innate tension of the design. It seems like, and just to be clear, I've not used this yet, but from what I've read about this, it seems like Google is going with an implementation that is much more factual than some of the other search implementations that are out there. They're being more transparent with sourcing, uh, though I can't independently log in and verify how good that is or how accurate it is. Um, it, it seems like that's the design here. But I think your overall point, Christina, about is this really going to lead to a better experience I, I think the jury is really um, still out on that, and um, I, I'm just currently not sold. Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree, and obviously I think I'm, I'm generally the more cautious person on our, our panel when it mm-hmm. comes to talking about AI implementation. I, I, I Similar to Christina, I, like imagining myself searching for these things, at this moment I don't have... I, I feel like I would need to do follow-up research anyway, no matter what. And I, I feel like that must be the case for many things. If you're searching, if you're planning a vacation and you're using this tool to plan what should you do in New York, you're you're going to need to do follow-up search. And I think for me, it feels faster at the moment. And maybe that's just because I'm not used to using a tool like this to parse for myself which of the links that come up are the ones that are going to be most helpful to me. Um rather than letting the tool make me a summary and then I read the summary and then I like maybe click the source links and do some poking. Like it it just, it feels like not necessarily a layer that makes it slower, 
but it's just another a layer of a, a multi-step process, something that's going to be a multi-step process anyway. Right. Um, and then I also, I, I want to talk briefly about something like you both mentioned about search getting worse and worse is Google. It, we've talked before about the impoopification as coined more foully by Cory Doctorow of internet services and Google searches is a victim of that. It's something that was, you know, very useful to people in the early internet for cataloging things. And then it became a tool for businesses. And now it is a, a way that Google makes a lot of money. Um, and that leads me to wonder what, what this process is going to look like for the links that the model is like pulling its data from. And obviously like this is searching the open web. It's, it's compiling its sentences from everything. However, the fact that there are, there is some kind of prioritization happening with the the sites that it is pulling its language from that it's somehow able to like gauge trustworthiness maybe um mm. it makes me wonder what i guess the revenue model eventually will be for something this intensive and important for the future of google search yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really well said. I, I also think there's the accuracy issue, right? Like Google, you know, not to diss Bing, Christina, because I know I, you I don't from Microsoft, but there's so much more writing with Google and search. Like if oh, Google yeah. f- up search, that's their, sorry, timestamp, that's it. their core product. For sure. Um, uh, there's nothing else they're doing that uh, is going to matter as much as that. Like Google is synonymous with search for a reason. So I, I think the monetization question is there. I also think that if they make it worse, like that is a real existential threat to the company in my yeah. opinion. Well, and I think that this is this is where that tension is, right? Like this is this is the core, I think, existential almost crisis within Google right now, which is that on the one hand, uh, I think that everyone, uh, I think most people would agree that regardless of how you feel about AI, AI is to some extent going to be the the next big wave of computing, um, in in a way that it was very and 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 I feel like I can say that definitively where I might have been a little bit more cautious to say that six months ago, even though I felt that very deeply. Now I think that it's definitive. We can say that this is the next big platform wave in a way that we could not say about AR or VR or you know the metaverse or or Web three or crypto yeah. or anything else. AI that this is for better or worse, this is a real thing. And Google is a company that has historically been on the cutting edge of most of the research and a lot of the technology that it has been fueling this, but they've never executed in kind of a direct to consumer way. They've had it embedded in their products, but they haven't really. Um, uh, They've they've kind of been very late, um, which is crazy to say. It's it being six months behind, being late, but they've been late to this generative AI um, uh, movement. Um, but but because of that, like okay, so on the one hand, they need to push forward as a company to uh, get in front of things and become a real leader in AI. On the other hand, the entire business of Google is held up by search revenue, and Ooh. this thing is something that could have a, a massive impact on um, on that revenue because it, the two things aren't necessarily diametrically at odds, but they are a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. So until you can figure out, unless they can figure out a way to really monetize things the same way, and I don't know if they can with AdWords, right? Like I don't know if there's a double click or if there's like an ad play the same way that there has been with search and with display ads um, in, in this 
AI um, space. And so I, I think that this is going to be, this is just a really interesting tension that exists in this company right now. And it's really interesting to see how they're trying to thread that needle to uh, try to serve most masters. And I don't know if you can. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that'll be the interesting thing. I don't, but, yeah. I, but I don't know if you can. Well, the link to that Verge piece is in the show notes. And hey, if you are part of, like, if you have access to this feature and you're a listener, uh, please Let us write in and tell us what your experience with it is like and, like, what searches you've been able to do and uh, how you feel about the answers that you got. Does anyone remember our email address? Um, I, you, you can do, you can do um, uh, rocket at christina.is and that'll go uh, to, to our account. I think that we have another email too, but if you can do rocket at christina.is, that will, uh, that will hit us because that is an account that I created for this podcast that I can give both of you access to or forward to your inboxes. You did give me access and then I immediately lost the password. So well, yeah, I'll, I would I'll, love I'll, that. I'll, I'll share it with you in one password. Um, Thank you. And, and uh, we can go from there. One final thing I did want to mention just because this is funny. Okay, so Bing did something that I think is is kind of messed up and and f- sort of petty, and that they make the new Bing search only available if you're using Microsoft Edge as the browser. Um, and and so a lot of people criticize that, like, well, okay, and and to, uh, for for listeners who aren't um, aware of this, uh, Microsoft Edge is based on the the Chromium project, which is the same mm-hmm. thing that powers Google Chrome, and, and the two. Th- Browsers are very, very similar. Uh, the dev tools are a little bit different, and they have you know different, um, I guess, integrations. But, but they're very, very similar. So it's very funny that like you have to use Microsoft Edge to use the Bing bot. Well, I just went to sign up for the wait list for the Google Search Labs thing, and and I do use Microsoft Edge typically as my default browser for uh, various reasons at this point. Mm-hmm. And it was like, no, I you can only sign up for the wait list if you're using Google Chrome. So oh. I literally had to open up Google Chrome to join the wait list. So, oh, wow. pet- so I have to oh. say, like, obviously Microsoft 100% started the pettiness on this and, and I'm not going to defend it. I, I, think it's, I think it's a stupid thing to do when your browsers are 99.9% the same. Um, uh, like it was Firefox or Safari, I could see an argument. But I do think that it is hilarious that the Google, like, Yep. did the exact same thing. They're like, oh, nope, we see this user agent. This is this is Microsoft Edge. <laughs> we, 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 uh-uh. You, you, you well gotta done. use, you gotta use Google Chrome if you wanna join this wait list. We live in a fractured internet. This episode of Rocket is brought to you by something that helps you make that internet maybe less fractured. It's ExpressVPN. Watching Netflix without using ExpressVPN is a bit like buying tickets for your favorite artist, but only being allowed to watch the opening act. Watching Netflix without a VPN basically means you're only getting access to a fraction of the content, and there's lots that you could be missing out on. Thankfully, ExpressVPN is the key to unlocking those shows, and it works by letting you change where Netflix thinks that you are located. Uh, For example, you can watch The Shawshank Redemption on Canadian Netflix. Much easier than me popping up to Canada. I don't want to go there. You can also watch The Office on Canadian Netflix. uh, Or It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia on UK Netflix. With just one click. You open that app, you click, you choose the country you want Netflix to think you're in, and refresh, boom, refresh, you're there. You're in the UK, but you're not. You're still right here in in US on US soil. I, to, to my American listeners, or maybe it's the opposite way. I don't know. 
There are so many reasons to choose ExpressVPN. It has blazing fast speeds. You can stream that Netflix in HD without buffering. And it's compatible with all of your devices. Phones, laptops, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. Plus... They've got servers in 94 different countries, so you can gain access to thousands of new shows. And it works with other streaming services like BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and many more. Uh, Guess what's happening right now? A writer's strike. Mm, It's a good time to have access to thousands of shows. It is. Uh, You can stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash rocket. Don't forget to use the link at expressvpn.com slash rocket to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That is expressvpn.com slash rocket. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Also, uh, if you live in in um, uh, Utah, ExpressVPN is very useful living in Utah as well. Just, 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 just so it that is. Out. So it is. Elizabeth Holmes. Yes. Oh. Yes. The content gods. Oh my God! This was so to good. Us this week. No, it's not just the story. It's the discourse. It's the dumb as hell discourse that happened yes. afterwards. I can't wait to talk about all of this. It, okay. There's so much. So, okay, I'll, I'll give okay. a brief summary. And then I really just want to just free flow through this. So Ooh. Elizabeth Holmes' forgiveness tour has begun in earnest uh-huh. with a New York Times profile this week. Amy Chozik, who wrote the piece, uh, spent, among other things, a day at the zoo with Elizabeth Holmes and partner Billy Evans and their kids, mm. I did conf- learn, uh, re- relevant to people who will be listening to our member special, that they have a great day named Teddy. I think most people did know this. I didn't know this. I think it's relevant to know the kind and size of dog that Elizabeth Holmes has. But more importantly, her friends know her as Liz, and she is a mother. Um, this is interesting. So a lot of people have been critiquing this as a puff piece. I actually found it a little harder on her than that. Yeah. Um, and But I would love to hear both of your, like, where were you when the New York Times Elizabeth Holmes piece dropped? What were you doing? Okay. I, 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 yeah. I was avoiding, I think I was the one who saw it first because I posted it to both of, I, I, I posted it immediately in um, in our WhatsApp chat. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then was was putting quotes. I, I was like avoiding trying to get ready for my nephew's second birthday party, <laughs> and I I just I came across it and I was like, holy expletive, oh my god! And then I started reading. And then I was like, every paragraph it was getting more and more and more and more. Yes. And I was like, oh my god! And then like the glossy photographs and the whole thing, like wow! Like let's talk about grifting. Being able to get like that professional family photograph of of the whole family, like in front of like the 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 the, the sea backslash of the ocean mm-hmm. with with uh, all four of them together, like you would pay so much money to get like a, a a photo like that, and then like the New York Times just like takes it as part of your rehabilitation tour. I love it. Um, sorry, go on, Bree. I want I want your reaction. Okay, okay. So I had a journey reading this piece because. 
I first started seeing like people on Blue Sky, they're like, oh, how dare the New York Times like do a puff piece on Elizabeth Holmes? You know, how dare they? They're contributing to this, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, so that's the framing as I start reading it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I sit down and I read it in like the first third of the piece is it is it's not that, but it's very, very sympathetic to Holmes. It's like the writer, uh, Amy Chozik, uh, talking about her experiences with Holmes, how normal she seems, like her running out of the house to uh, like help her wipe her shoe, how she just seems like a mom. And then like the piece kind of turns a corner at one point. It's a long piece, right? Mm-hmm. I understand that everyone didn't read it. And her editor basically laughs at her and goes, hey, she pulled a fast one on you, Amy. (laughs) Like, how can you be falling for this? And then she starts getting, like, uh, sources that had been on the record with her before um, saying things. Who Elizabeth Holmes told her to talk to. Elizabeth Holmes told her to talk to, saying certain things, and then privately off the record going, don't believe anything she's telling. (laughs) So it's like that color all through it. So it starts from this like presentation that Elizabeth Holmes is doing to the world. And it has like the New York Times subtle sarcasm in it. Like it's got a line, I'm not quoting it exactly, but like Elizabeth Holmes and I were out there talking on XYZ and we noted a, a snarling anaconda, right? Like it's got these subtly sarcastic like jabs all the way through it. And it comes to the end and her conclusion is basically, I think there are two Elizabeth um, I have some real questions if this is not just a tactic here, um, you know, but here's what I'm seeing, right? Which mm-hmm. I thought was a really measured, thoughtful piece. This is why I subscribe to The Times, which is very expensive. And this is, this is the most important thing I want to say. I hope our listeners can hear us out there. I think there's a really nasty kind of media criticism that assumes that the audience is stupid Mm -hmm. and cannot understand subtext and that we, the informed, smart audience, need to protect the dumb, stupid, mouth-breathing proletariat by treating them like children. And we are mm-hmm. going to do that by attacking any kind of journalism that, like, tries to explore subjects with nuance. And it's like, go to the articles, go to the comments in this Times article. They are easily going 95% against Elizabeth Holmes, if not higher. Like, this is the Times audience. The Times audience read this piece just like we did. They came to the same conclusion we did. And at some point, I don't think it's crazy to assume that the readers of the New York Times are not idiots okay (laughs) am i crazy am i crazy no no you're not you're not crazy sorry go on simone yeah i think it's easy like when you see the piece first on social media and the headline is uh liz holmes wants you to forget about elizabeth and it's a soft photo of her Mm -hmm. with you know her hair down and no makeup like 
it's easy to take that image at face value and say, okay, okay, so we're giving her the PR treatment. But that's the point. That's what they're trying to communicate. Well, they're, they're, okay. they're playing with that image. Well, Go on. okay, but but they're also, it's also a puff piece. It's also an mm-hmm. absolute puff piece. Like, I think that exactly what you said, Brie, is dead on. And I think that a lot of the discourse around this is utterly insipid because you're right. People are acting as if people can't understand nuance. Having said that, I also, and I thought it was an interesting piece, I had a lot of problems with the piece. Really? A lot of problems. Hit me up. And, and, Hit I, and, me I, up. and and I'm a person who, I thought to we be would clear, agree on this. Huh? No, well, 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 Disagreement. Well, 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 to be clear, like, I think, look, it, it serves my best interest for her to not go to jail because I made a bet on that. <laughs> and I also will say, and I, I've, I've been very upfront about this. I, I believe she deserves jail time. I absolutely think the 11 and a half years is way too much. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Now, part of that I'm going to put on her. I think she should have absolutely, like, had a plea bargain and, and gotten, like, 18 months or whatever. But, like, 18 months, two years that's typically what you would get for a crime of this type. She's not Bernie Madoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people that that she, quote unquote, you know, like uh, defrauded um, were were not like made investments in a biotech startup company. She wasn't convicted on the really serious charges, which were, you know, the, the medical record um, mm-hmm. like stuff like that. She was found not guilty of or they couldn't come to a decision on. So the thing that she was found guilty of was was fraud. And, and I'm sorry, I think that the sentence is is insane. Having said that, I read the story. I understand what Amy Chobach is trying to do. I do think she got rolled. I do think she completely got rolled. And the one thing I would say that I had a problem with in the piece, I'm here for the nuance. I'm here for the the having kind of the bigger conversation. I don't understand if you are spending four days with someone, three days, I think she spent three days with her, why you cannot just ask her directly to her face, is this a scam? Are you scamming me right now? Why is this happening? Like to me, you should, that's what your job is. Your job is to to Mm. outright say, Am I getting scammed right now? Because if you're ha- if you're hearing things from other people, and if if you're if, if you know if she's letting the the the, the partner uh, you know say some of the uh, take on more of the criticisms, and if she's acting as if she feels very guilty or or, or not guilty but but um, uh, thoughtful about uh, what happened to journalists and what happened to Tyler Schultz, which I don't believe for a second. She does not give a damn of about John Kerry Rue or Tyler Schultz. She hates them. She hates John Kerry Rue with everything in her being. She would have to. If, if she didn't hate him, she would be like genuinely like there would be something wrong with her because how could you not hate the person who set up your downfall? Um, but like to me, it just says like, how, how can you not like she in the piece? She's like, well, I didn't feel comfortable. She almost seemed to say, I didn't feel like I could ask her directly. Are you mm. scamming me right now? And to me, look, if she's, if she refuses to answer the question or kicks you out of her house, then that's a better story. But you have this time with her. Why not just ask her directly? I mean, she could still lie to you because I think that she probably was lying for a lot of it, but like, why not just ask her directly? Are you scamming me right now? Is all of this an act? I think that's fair. I think that I think that would have been a better piece asking that. But when you say my interpretation of it isn't that she got well, I think she did get rolled, but I think she's being transparent with the reader that she she understands that she could be getting rolled here. 
right? Like she's giving her honest impression. She says outright, I am not smarter than X, Y, and Z person that got scammed by her. Um, It's entirely possible. This is still my impression here. I mean, to me, like other than that, what is your criticism of the piece? Because I think she's being upfront with the reason. No, and 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 I think that that, and I think that's fine. I just I I personally think it would have been a more interesting story for me personally if it Mm -hmm. had been. And I I blame the editors more on this to be clear more than I do like uh, the, the writer. But I think it would have been more interesting if 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 the if the story had been titled something like, um, Elizabeth Holmes lied to me or 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 rolled me. I still like her. Right. Mm. Like, because, because that, that wasn't, that was inherently what this was about. She, she's kind of coming away with the idea that, yeah, I probably got played, but I still really like this person. She was able Mm -hmm. to manipulate me because to me, that is actually more interesting, which is, and, and this is the thing I actually find most fascinating about her. As a person, I don't find her particularly attractive. She's not ugly, but I don't think that she's like any beauty or anything. She's fine. Um, and then I'm not trying to criticize that. I just think that a lot of people say, oh, she only got away with stuff because of her looks. And I'm like, eh, there are way more attractive uh, women um, in, in Silicon Valley and in tech than her. Like that, I, I think that that's, that's a misnomer, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that, 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 that that's a little bit insulting in some ways. I think the story was helpful, but, but you know, I, I don't find her that attractive. I've never found her charismatic at all. Um, mm-hmm. To the point that I even said this to one of her former employees on on Blue Sky, who was, I think, understandably upset about the lies that she told because he was pointing out that you know she was making things up, like saying, "Oh, you know, Sunny told me to wear the the black turtlenecks when it was uh you know one of their colleagues who who told her about Steve Jobs and told her to wear the black turtlenecks and like yeah. you know she was in the piece completely lying and, and making things up and and he could see that. And, and I asked him, I said, look, I just want to know because I don't personally find her charismatic at all, but clearly she must be. So what's going on? And he said that, that she's not personally charismatic, but that she has some sort of pull, you know, especially when she talks about business and other things that is very compelling. And that to me is interesting because I will be honest, like I was approached a couple of times, and I think I've shared this on the show before, to write about Theranos, and I never did. And it wasn't because I'm smarter and I saw that it was BS. It was because she bored me and there was nothing that stuck <laughs> uh, out to me about it being compelling. Now, God, I yeah. wish I'd only known, right? Because it would have been uh, fascinating. But clearly, the jury really liked her. They even said in their, you know, like the interviews afterwards, they believed her. They think that she did things wrong, but they believed that she believed, you know, what she was saying. And they, they found her not necessarily untruthful. Um, uh, Amy Chobak, they, very clearly, like it finds her likable and finds her believable. That mm-hmm. to me, I think is really, I would have loved to have gone more into that, which is what is this person's pull? What is it about her that lets her have the ability to tell in some cases, just bald faced lies or, or, or rewrite history and rechange things that can draw people in. Even when you know better, even when you are a journalist who has, you know, was coming into this eight years after there've been, you know, documentaries, uh, television series, books, podcasts, mm-hmm. everything, about it and you can still have all that preconceived idea and still come across being like, wow, I I like this person and I believe her in some ways. I, I do want to, I'm interested in that piece. I do want to read that piece. I think it is just a different, a different piece from a different yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I just, I just think that would have been more interesting. Like to me, that, to me, I think that, that, that if, if you really have that, that kind of conflict, I personally would have rather read that story about mm-hmm. like how do you Before reconcile that? Before we wrap up here, are there any uh, particular standout anecdotes that either that we didn't talk about that either of you want Poor to? Poor Balto. Oh, Poor yes. Balto is uh-huh. dead. Oh, 
the search and rescue wolf. Yeah, which, yeah. We, which we knew, but her story about that, that was, I mean, that was the thing I think it was probably most sympathetic. I'm going to ask you this, Brie, because you and I, we, we've, we've disagreed about this a little bit. I still stand by my opinion, but having read this piece, do you think she got pregnant to, uh, yes. to, to avoid jail? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I also just want to say, like, I think your media criticism, that is fair and measured and reasonable. Like, that's the kind of editor that, that's the kind of feedback an editor should be giving to make this piece stronger. I think that's utterly fair. So I, I don't disagree with that. No, and, and, and I want to say, I, yeah. I, I agree with your criticism of the criticism, which is I think that it's just people are going off on this without, A, I don't even know how many people read the story, and, and B, you know, like, I will say this. In five years, I told this to, to, my, to my protege, Kylie. I told her, I said, in five years, there are going to be a billion think pieces about how we all got Elizabeth Holmes wrong. So just yeah. prepare for it because that's right. happening. Yeah. Like we know that that's yeah, going right. to happen. That, that this, that this piece that we're having right now is absolutely like people are going to be reassessing her and trying to like put her into a new light. So mm-hmm. yeah. Amy might've just been ahead of her time. There we go. It's time for our desserts here on Rocket, and we've got a recurring guest this week, and that person is Corwin Bug Emery, the creative director, game designer, and a part of production management at Spooky Pinball. Bug is here to talk about the new Scooby-Doo pinball table uh, that Spooky is putting out, and Brianna, I know you're super excited about this. Do you have any additional context that people should understand? Okay, okay, so... uh... Bug, I've got. I just want to tell you honestly what I thought when this game got announced. Uh, you know, your last title was Halloween. I own Halloween. It's amazing. I love it. Everybody's talking like, what is the next uh, spooky game going to be? And it comes out that it's going to be Scooby Doo. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm not really that big a fan of Scooby Doo. Like, I, I enjoyed it as a child, but it's not like a, you know, a premiere horror movie. Right. So I was just kind of lukewarm on it. And I actually got a chance to play one on vacation. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you I had tickets to Disney and there were days I just spent the entire time at the pinball arcade playing Scooby-Doo instead because that was more fun. I need a review on Inside saying Scooby is better than Disney. That's what I need. (laughs) I I will do that. I will do that. It is an amazing game. It shoots brilliantly. The atmosphere is 10 out of 10. And, you know, I'm somebody, if you come to my house and look at my collection, I've got Bond 60th, which is, you know, a very expensive table. You know, I've got Aliens, LE, I've got Godzilla. Like, this is, I have a pretty large collection. And I, I am genuinely saying this is a really, really special piece of game design. Uh, I'm honored to have you here on the show today. And I just kind of wanted to ask you about what was the process of, like, what made you go with Scooby-Doo as the license? And what was kind of the process of uh, developing this game? Sure. So, I mean... The, the way we ended up getting the license, which um, there, there's always been a lot of ask for the Scooby-Doo license specifically from us because our first game, America's Most Haunted, was a ghost hunting game, very similar in nature to what Scooby-Doo was. They went to different locations and looked for ghosts. Um, and so, I mean, you know, over the years, like just building up reputation, you know, 
investing more into the company, getting bigger and bigger titles each time, always trying to get a little bit bigger each time. And uh, when we were working on Rick and Morty, uh, Adult Swim was bought out by Warner Brothers, which put us in direct contact with, of course, Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. who Ooh. we quickly figured out had the Scooby-Doo license. <laughs> and like I, I, it literally was never a, a thought, a decision, a second's thought. Everybody just said, okay, so we're going to get Scooby. Like, we're going to go for Scooby. That's obviously the next thing. Like, I, <laughs> it wasn't even a slight debate. Like, it was just as simple as waking up in the morning and just waking up. Like, it was like, oh, yeah, that's what we do. Okay. <laughs> so we immediately you went manifested. for manifested. <laughs> exactly. We immediately went for that. And um, uh, as we were pursuing that, because licensing takes a long time. I mean, it, it takes months sometimes to, to lock mm-hmm. stuff like that down. Uh, you know, we had Halloween getting pushed out the door at that time. And uh, me and Spooky Luke uh, have been in the production line together for a while. And uh, we we, we uh, both run the production line together. And uh, we're trying to make that as easy as possible because, like, you have to be able to build games easily, get them out the door, like, do all your QC, everything. You want to get that as easy as possible for yourself so you can focus on design as well. So... We wanted to get ahead on Scooby-Doo so that it wasn't nothing felt last minute or thrown together. We wanted to really take our time with the game, get it to be exactly what we wanted it to be. And so we, as Halloween was getting pushed right out the door, we started designing Scooby-Doo. And uh, I'll still remember like the cold winter night. It was like seven o'clock and Spooky looked texted me and he's like, are you doing anything? And I was like, no. And he was like, do you want to start working on a layout? I was like, Absolutely. So we showed up to the shop together with a, a six pack of beer and we, we put down a blank play field and we were just like, all right, let's start figuring this thing out. So started off with just a normal play field and uh, drawing out uh, just with a Sharpie, like, okay, here's kind of what I'm thinking. Like, this is the theme. How can we integrate various things about that theme to it, but also keep it general enough that you can do all these different cases and things. Cause that's, that's the hard thing with pinball. You can right. never get too specific, but if and, you don't and if I can stop for just yeah, one yeah, yeah. second and kind of tell, oh, sorry. I just wanted to explain to listeners uh, a little bit what the game design is like. So the thing that, in my experience, Spooky does better than anyone else in the industry is there, I think, generally speaking, there are two approaches to pinball gameplay. You've got flow. Flow is one kind of um, gameplay technique. Like Godzilla is a very flowy game. Foo Fighters is a very flowy game. What Spooky does is they really make control-type pinball games where it really rewards trapping up the ball, making very precise shots, thinking through your strategy. You're not just in a groove hitting stuff. You have to be really, really strategic in how you approach goals. So what you have is you've got, um, is it seven lanes at the bottom? Seven uh, different like targets that you can shoot at the bottom. And they're caves that like loop back around and fire back on the play field. But then some of them will go to an upper play field. And the upper play field like has all these trap doors. And it's this really, it's a almost a haunted mansion of a yes. pinball experience. Because when you're shooting it, you're really not sure at first where all your balls are going to go. And then they start getting trapped in all these like 
weird places like an apron lock. I've never seen that mm-hmm. in a game before. Mm-hmm. So you have this really wonderful theme integration with Scooby-Doo, but you also have this layout that is just wonderfully rewarding to shoot. And that, in my view, is what Spooky does better than anyone else. You make games that are really, really fun to shoot. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, we um we knew with Scooby being the biggest license we've ever had and also a, a huge family theme in general. I mean, because we've had licenses that are mm, pretty yeah. specific to a certain customer base. Scooby is as broad of a license as it gets. Literally everybody grew up watching Scooby-Doo. So we wanted it to feel approachable to everybody. But pinball being pinball, you have a lot of right. really good players who need insane depth to games that most people will never even see. So you have to do something for them too. And that's where those extra rewarding shots of like locking balls on the apron, getting mystery machine multi-ball, um, getting through that row of drop target banks on the left side, things like that's where things like that come in. And, and you know, the layer of code too, of like, here's the base level of what you can do to get through a mode. And then here's these extra steps that can get you more points, et cetera, to get through a mode. So yeah, get it, making a game that was accessible to everybody was really important to us on this one, for sure. So if I were, as a pinball novice, what would you want me to know if I were approaching this table for the first time? Sure, like like a general guide of like, here's what you should do on your first game to to have some fun and see some some cool things. What should I avoid? Game. What should I do? Sure. Yeah. So the, the easiest thing to do is uh, when you start a game... Collecting white shots uh, lights the mystery. You shoot the mystery machine to start a case. That's the easiest thing. It takes like two shots and then you hit the van. So three shots total and then you start a mode and you'll get a very iconic villain from the show, a really cool light show, a new song intro, and then a set of shots that you want to go and shoot for. And, And the rules can be quite complex in some modes, but in general, you're shooting the blinking lights in Scooby Doo. So I, I think that's like the, the <laughs> best just like walk up to it and start playing kind of thing you can do. Otherwise, people love, love the bookcase flipper on the upper play field. Yes, it's so good. Oh, that's it's fun. so good. Shoot the center ramp and hold your left flipper open so the bookcase gets it and it'll smack it over onto that upper play field and then just hit anything. It'll be fun. Like you'll start something up there. It'll be enjoyable. But yeah, man, people go bananas for that bookcase flipper. We had no no idea they were going to like it that much because we thought it was a total gamble because like you don't mess with just so people know what he's talking about so there's this bookcase um flipper at the top play field so if you hold down your left flipper you're going to block the shot from like spinning around the table and going back down to the lower play field and it's really slow, and I mean slow in a positive sense up top, of these like catapult shots that you're trying to do with this bookcase flipper to get in all these different lanes. And there's also a bash toy up up top. So it's this really, really, it, it's, it's a wonderful example of theme integration in pinball mm-hmm. because like a, a moving bookcase is so Scooby-Doo, mm-hmm. obviously, yeah. and you've integrated it into this flipper that you you can hit on the top part of the flipper and the bottom part of the flipper. It has all this utility of like blocking uh, exit points for it and throwing it around to different lanes. It's it's really, really clever. Yeah, it, it just really changes how a flipper works, which like I said, like that's not really something 
you do in pinball. Like the flippers are sacred. You're not supposed to mess with how those do things. And then, yeah, it just, <laughs> and we kind of landed on that idea a little bit by accident. We were trying to figure out how to do a, a pretty generic diverter of like, it looks like a bookcase and it literally slides over and shifts the ball. And then we just mm-hmm. kind of did a makeshift, mm-hmm. like, well, we just screwed this down to the flipper for now. And then it started like changing the gameplay a bunch. We were like, oh man, this might be something. And then, yeah, a few revisions later, there we are. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm very happy with the results there. I couldn't have asked for more. (laughs) What you were just saying there, I mean, about like the design, um, in some ways it feels like that that, uh, game mechanic kind of came out of a little bit about how you were trying to integrate the IP into um, the the, the game. And I, but I, but I wanted to know from your perspective, were there any difficulties that you had in terms of, you know, w- with the IP license, with Hanna-Barbera, Warner Brothers, whatever, were there any challenges that you had in, in having to kind of, you know, thread that needle where this is this iconic property, as, as you mentioned, that everybody knows, and it's family friendly, but it also has a subversive element to it, right? So was, was there any, um, I, was there any challenge, I guess, you had in making sure that you, I guess, got the tone right for, for the game mm. uh, and, and with the IP to not anybody off? Right. Yeah. So that's the really scary thing when you do land a good license is, man, you better do it right. (laughs) Because people have an idea (laughs) in their head of how that game's going to look and what it's going to do. And you really kind of do have to try to hit what people's expectations are going to be from that that specific title. Fortunately, with Scooby-Doo, it writes itself for the most part. Like, you're going on mysteries, you're solving cases, you're eating Scooby snacks, you're making sandwiches, you're making traps. Like, we got very lucky that the game does a lot of it there, kind of writes itself for you. But, I mean, as far as um, challenges, like, with the the licensing side, it was was really an easy one. I mean, we knew we wanted the original two seasons because that's pretty much the most iconic uh, thing from Scooby-Doo. I mean, most people recognize those villains, how those characters look. Uh, there's other really great movies and shows from from the Scooby-Doo franchise, but we, we wanted to keep it simple and direct and keep it contained to that one specific area, which helped us a lot with stylistically how it was going to look. Um, big thing with Scooby-Doo is that everything is dark and dreary and creepy looking, but they always pop. They always stand out amongst it way more than their surroundings. So you get these really dark, cool, creepy castles and and cemeteries and lighthouses and monsters. And you work those around the gang who are just very bright, awesome colors, especially in the butter cabinet. (laughs) And uh, it just, it just works itself (laughs) out. It really does. Like it, there's a reason the show works as well as it does, and it's been around as long as it is. It's a hard thing to break. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, hopefully that answers the question well. <laughs> no, totally. That was great. So um, I got to ask a tough question. I'm saying this is someone, look, I obviously love your work, um, but there was a lot of criticism uh, of the Halloween slash Ultraman run as far as the mm-hmm. quality control uh, yep. of that. Um, I certainly had some issues uh, that... I needed to get, actually, I've got to call you guys about something else that went wrong oh, with no. that. So what what changes did you, like, do you feel that this is a game? Did you, did you learn things from the manufacturing challenges uh, for Halloween that you've taken into producing Scooby-Doo? Oh, 100%, yes. I mean, I, I could list uh, dozens of things that have changed that have made Scooby, especially now, 
to be some of the, the best build quality we've had lately. I mean, it, it's getting significantly better. And um, a, a big part of it is just like Halloween being mine and, and Spooky Luke's first game design together. There was things we learned, you know, doing your face first game design that once you get to the production line, no matter how hard you try to make sure it's going to be as easy to assemble as possible, you're going to come across things that you just didn't know could get messed up that you just find out like, oh, if you change it that much, it will ruin this or that. So, I mean, that was a big part of it was just learning from the mistakes there to know going into Scooby-Doo, like, okay, here's what we learned from the last one. Here's what we need to for sure change about the layout and the build design to make it easier to manufacture. Because the easier a game is to build, the better your quality is going to be. Problem is, is we put so much into the games that it's not the easiest game in the world to build. So you have to try and make up for that. In a lot of other departments. And, and something else we did was we did slow down production to increase our, our build quality. I mean, we used to do 10 games a day, sometimes 10 plus of Halloween and Ultraman. We do seven Scooby-Doo's a day because we identified those issues, realized we need to focus on making sure the ones that go out are as good as they can possibly be. And then I, I don't know if it'd be like boring to get into the details of, but just overall new levels of QC at each department. I don't know if you saw the the live stream walkthrough we did of our factory recently, but each of those areas I, no, I went No, I through, didn't. Yeah, yeah, it's on our Facebook page. It's it's definitely worth a watch. We I did a whole tour of our factory and like each department and showed everything off uh, of how we we build the games and whatnot. And uh each of those departments now has a a much more intensive quality control step towards the end of like making sure everything that gets to the next, the cat just jumped on the chair. I'm so sorry. <laughs> the, everything that gets to the next step of production is, is already been cleared and QC'd so that by the time it gets to the very end, it should be magnificent. And then even then it still gets another three plus hours per machine of just overall inspection and playing and testing. So yeah, we, we definitely identified and, and heard everybody's, complaints and reviews there and have done everything in our power to fix that i mean just months of 12 hour plus days for seven days a week trying to fix that specific issue and i'm happy to say it it has gotten much much better pinball's still incredibly and and to be fair and to be fair to y'all like if i call stern i have been trying to get certain i've been trying to get the repair kit for my uh godzilla like bridge kit which Mm -hmm. is a design flaw that came in one of their games that took me like seven months of calls and getting my distributor to file stuff over and over again when something goes wrong with my halloween I know who I'm talking to. It's spooky. And y'all send that right out the door to me. So, you know, um, I I do have to say, I I, I think when you buy a game like this, you're trying to support a smaller company. And, um, yeah, I've I've found y'all to be amazing to work with uh, and very responsive. I actually, I had a role in updating some of the Halloween code because I left (laughs) mine on and played it so much. I discovered a bug (laughs) that is existing in the software. Software with that, and and they actually uh, ended up uh, addressing that. So that's I awesome. think that's what I would say. Well, we are going to wrap up this little Q and A. Uh, Bug, do you want to tell us uh, where can people find you and Spooky Pinball online? Yeah, so if you go on to uh, Facebook, it's just Spooky Pinball. If you go on Instagram, it's Spooky Pinball Official. 
we're on YouTube. I'm posting videos there typically of like gameplay or or various uh, adjustments for your games. Uh, that's just Spooky Pinball on YouTube. I think that's pretty much all we're on. Our website, SpookyPinball.com. Scooby-Doo CE, or each version of the Scooby-Doo is still available through the website and a handful of <laughs> distributors. So Y'all don't have a Twitter and you don't appreciate how good the pinball conversation is on Twitter. Is that really on there every I had day. no idea if Brothers Pinball. How could you tell him everybody. to get on Twitter in May yeah, of 2023? I, I was going to say. The <laughs> pinball Twitter is really good. Jack from yeah. Dead Flip is on there. Jack's um, a social there's media There's a really, monster. really good pinball community. He is amazing. But yeah, I'm telling sure. you, if you don't want to run the spooky pinball Twitter, I will run that for <laughs> you and I will have fun with all these people. I will sell you some games on, yeah. on Twitter for you. <laughs> Thank you, Bugs, so much for coming on and telling us more about spooky pinball and Scooby-Doo and where we can find you. Um, we uh, will hopefully talk to you again soon. Welcome to our end of show introduced to you in the normal way that I always introduce it. Let's talk about what we're doing this week. Uh, Brianna, let's start with you. What are you up to? Oh, my God. I'm going through a ton of polling data uh, about the 2024 election. Um, Some really, really, really interesting uh, conclusions. I cannot wait to uh, uh, share with people, but I cannot talk about it yet. So I am neck deep in spreadsheets. Delightful. Christina, what about you? Well, I am uh, getting ready. We are like now like two weeks away from Microsoft Build. And <gasps> so um, I'm uh, one of the co-hosts this year, which is exciting. Oh, wow. um, it is going to be both online and in person. If you happen to be there in person and you see me, obviously Rocket Rules do apply. Um, it is at a, like the, the, the Seattle Convention Center. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm I'm starting to get like very knee deep into Microsoft Build stuff because that is right around the corner. Exciting. Uh, and I am going to Ireland. That's oh, what I'm doing this week. <laughs> I'm, going to I'm, I'm finishing a video very, very quickly um, that will come out on Polygon probably next week while I'm away. Um, and other than that, I'm getting ready to see some sheepdog trials. And I'm super excited about it. That's amazing. Thank y'all. Family vacation. Uh, hey, where can I find you online, Brianna? Uh, look, I'm enjoying Blue Sky. Only talk to me on Blue Sky. <laughs> I'm Brianna on Blue Sky. All right. That's Brianna.bluesky. Whatever it is. Just yeah, look I'll, up Brianna. I'll find it out. I'm the Brianna. So. <laughs> All right, Christina, what about you? Yeah, so I am film girl. That is one word, not with an underscore because they don't have underscores. Uh, at bsky.social. Um, I am film underscore girl at mastodon.social and film underscore girl on Twitter and Instagram. I too am spending a lot of my time on Blue Sky because it is just really, really fun. And uh, yeah, so, but you can find me. I'm, I'm, I'm film underscore girl everywhere except for Blue Sky where they don't have underscores. So, why didn't you just go with Christina? Because I tried and somebody had already taken it or it wasn't uh. But what I'm going to do, and, and actually I, I would like some boosty feedback or, or listener feedback on this. I have a million domains and I think, should it be filmgirl.wtf? Should that be my blue sky username? Mm. Yeah. Do you have Christina Warren? No. I have Christina Warren.com. I have Christina dot uh, is. I have Christina.wtf. I have filmgirl.wtf. I have Christina.social. I have filmgirl.social. I have Theranos.online. I have Scamster.me. You have um, so many of these. Oh, my Dang. God. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're good at this. 
Uh, yeah. Okay. Listener feedback to uh, rocket at Christina dot is. Let's find out what Christina should be going by on Blue Sky. Thank you so much for listening to our show. If you are a boosty, you're about to hear a bonus segment where we're going to be talking about Christina's article in Inverse about BlackBerry Messenger. Um, and if not, learn more about that at relay.fm slash membership. And I would love it if you would review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps other people find it and enjoy our scintillating content. Thank you so much to everyone who has done that. Uh, this episode of Rocket is terminated. 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 